0: The following audio is from a sermon series entitled, Hard to Believe, Answering Common Objections to Christianity. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. So looking out, there's several of you I do know, um, but several I don't. So uh, for those of you who don't know me, uh, as Sam said, my name's Eric. Uh, I'm married to my wife, Toni, um, and we have two kids uh, Angelina, who's four, and Isaac, who is about to turn two here in a couple months, so uh, getting big. I'm excited to be over here. I'm excited to, to dig into this topic. Um, so for those of you who uh, maybe you've been out on vacation all summer or maybe this is your first time visiting, um, kind of let you know what we're doing here. We're, we're in the middle of a sermon series we've entitled Hard to Believe, and basically Uh, What we're doing in this series is we're taking a look at some of the biggest objections to Christianity um, and kind of reasoning through them together, thinking through them. Now, this is different than what we normally do. Normally, we'll take big chunks of Scripture and work verse by verse, week by week through them. Uh, So this is going to be a little bit different. And uh, we're going to look at uh, the topic, or rather, objection to the Christian faith that is this. Isn't the church responsible for so much injustice in the world? Aren't Christians such hypocrites? See, the claim is basically this. Look at the injustice left in the wake of religion, and Christianity specifically. If this is what Christian beliefs leave behind, wouldn't we be much better off just moving on from these outdated beliefs? Why should I worship or believe the God of the Bible if all those who claim to know him are no better morally and arguably worse than the rest of society. Even if Christianity is true, why would I want to be a part of an institution that's been responsible for so much injustice and so many horrific atrocities throughout history? And it's filled with so many hypocritical and self-righteous believers. Now that there is a solid objection. For my money, the objection that is most concrete against the truths of Christianity Christianity is Christians. It's those who claim the name of Jesus that most tarnish the gospel claims of him. As we look at and deeper into these objections today, I want to look at two major parts of this claim. First, I want to briefly look at the institutional injustice committed by the church throughout history. And then second, I want to look at the individual hypocrisy and self-righteous moralism often found in its members. So first, let's take a look at the church as an institution of injustice. Now, there's no doubt that when we look through the pages of history, that the church has been responsible for heinous acts of violence, persecution, and oppression. And there's absolutely no excuse for the damage that these events and periods of history have caused. From the Crusades to the Inquisition, the the Salem witch trials, or even Christian pastors and clergymen and their hand in the African slave trade. See, there's no doubt that the history of those claiming to be in with God is not bright. See, this is not an argument that we get to talk about, especially when looking at history victoriously. There is no denying historical facts. However... Can we simply say that because Christians have acted with so much injustice, that we can therefore throw out the claims of it, or even that if they are true, we should abandon them? Now, before, I, before we answer that, I think, to be fair, we should look outside of the Christian religion. Is Christianity the only religion that has a black eye in its history? If we do a similar objective look at all world religions, what would we find? Unfortunately, we'd find much of the same. And Tim Keller points out so much in his book, The Reason for God, when he says this. He says, religion transcendentalizes, that is to make superior, ordinary cultural differences so that parties feel they are in a cosmic battle between good and evil. Christian nations institutionalized imperialism, violence, and oppression through the Inquisition and the African slave trade. The totalitarian and militaristic Japanese empire the mid-20th century grew out of a culture deeply influenced by Buddhism and Shintoism. Islam is the soil of much of today's terrorism, while Israeli forces have often been ruthless too. Hindu nationalists, in the name of their religion, carry out bloody strikes on both Christian churches and Muslim mosques. All of this evidence seems to indicate that religion aggravates human differences until they boil over in war and violence and oppression of minorities. So is it possible that religion does, as the late secularist Christopher Hitchens says, poison everything? Is it merely the belief in a god or gods that leads people to act in oppressive and terrible ways? Unfortunately, history would also show us that this isn't the case. There have been and continue to be all kinds of societies and empires that would reject any notion of a God and all organized religion that have participated in a long history of war and oppression. You have Russia under Joseph Stalin, China under Mao Zedong, and Cambodia under the direction of Pol Pot. All some millions of people persecuted, oppressed, and killed. All were rejecting any organized religion and any notion of a God. See, the fact is that violence, oppression, greed, abuse, and ultimately genocide are not a problem of the religious exclusively, but also the irreligious. This is not a problem only for those who uphold moral absolutes, but also those who would elevate reason and secularism as the pillars of society. See, every regime, whether claiming to a divine purpose or not, is and has been capable of inexcusable and horrific acts of injustice. So is it possible that we can therefore conclude that the possibility of a worldview be, world being used in inhumane and horrific ways is is a fair justification to throw out the claims of it? See, I don't think anybody would argue that because... Uh, The abuses that can happen by doctors and medical professionals, we should therefore abandon all medical care. See, nobody would argue that because some doctors have been greedy and overcharged and others in laziness have misdiagnosed and mistreated patients, sometimes leading to death, that therefore we should stop going to all doctors altogether. Instead, we would look at these instances for what they are, abuses, we would say that this isn't at the heart of what medical care is about. See, the fact is, is that if we don't transcendentalize our particular God, our particular beliefs about him, we will make something else transcendent. Something else will become central. Something else will become the most important thing that separates the good people from the bad people. See, we have an innate desire inside of us to be exalted. We are always looking for something that makes us stand out against the crowd, something that makes us rise above the rest of people. We'll find anything that separates us, just as it can be obedience to a particular moral code. We can can make it uh, the clothes we wear, the music we like, or even a particular body shape. It can be where we went to school, our political allegiance, or even our own morality determined by us. See, it can be our country, our race, our sex, or even how awesome of a beard we can grow. See, we love to draw lines that separate the good people or the valuable from the bad people or the less valuable. And we all know one thing for sure. I'm on the good side. And the rest, well, they're on the bad side. See, this is what gossip is all about, isn't it? Can you believe what she said? Do you see what so-and-so is wearing? See, we are constantly looking for how we measure up with others and love to see it. We love to see something dirty in them because it only makes us shine brighter. I mean, think about your speech and your thoughts over the last week. How much of it was about the others, others' failures and your successes? How much of it was about the character flaws that you see in others and how you would never act like that? How much of it was of your thoughts and words were about your failures and lifting up others? See, I know some of us are so trapped by this mindset, we're doing it right now. Not me. I, I lift people up all the time because that's what good people do. But I think if we can honestly assess ourselves this morning, we will see that this is true of all of us. And see, it's this very issue, deep within the heart of every human, that brings about all injustice. There are really only two things necessary to create a person who will carry out injustice. Pride and power. It's the only two things you need the pride to see yourself as more value or better, valuable or better than someone else, and the power to do something about it. That is what makes every worldview capable of injustice. See, we transcendentalize something, that is, and that makes us prideful and demonize those who don't have what we have, don't think like we think, and don't believe what we believe. See, our value and goodness become increasingly inflated, and this drives us to look at those people those who are beneath me with contempt. I mean, just think of today's political climate. Anyone ever read the comment section under any political story on social media? Here's a pro tip, don't. Just don't. See, both sides of the political aisle are sure of one thing, that their side is right. And all, and all the good people are over here. And all the bad people are over there. It's not just that we're right and they're wrong, It's that those people, the other side, is trying to destroy the country. We can't just disagree. It's that that side, with their values, their beliefs, they're actually below me. See, pride is a treacherous thing because those who continue to exalt their own value and goodness become increasingly blind to their own ego. I'm guessing if I took a poll of 1,000 people, roughly 1,000 out of 1,000, would answer that they are less prideful and more humble than the average person. But statistically, this can't be the case. In fact, many studies have been done in this area. It's something that social psychology calls illusory superiority. A study in 1976 first looked at this and attached a personal assessment to SAT tests, and they asked students to rate themselves on several desirable qualities the results were quite interesting. For example, 70% of people said that they were better in leadership than most people. And a whopping 85% said they were better at getting along with others, with 25% of those placing themselves in the top 1%. In another survey, 93% of Americans said they were a better driver than most. See, these statistics just don't work. And a study done last year showed that the vast majority of Americans rated themselves as more just, virtuous, and moral than others. And the more desirable a particular quality they felt needed for being a quote-unquote good person, the more likely they were to rate themselves as excelling. See, we just can't see ourselves clearly. And in our blindness, we see ourselves as being above others. And then when conflict happens it rarely resolves peacefully. As researchers noted from this study, they said, these beliefs, the beliefs of moral superiority, that, that you're a better, more virtuous person than others, demand scientific attention for several reasons. For one, in contrast to other domains of positive self-belief, they likely contribute to the severity of human conflict. When opposing sides are convinced of their own righteousness... Escalation of violence is more probable, and the odds of resolution are ominously low. See, massive injustices happen for incredibly noble purposes, at least to the people who carry them out. So we hold up some ideal, some particular value that we hold transcendent, and begin to look at others with contempt. And when we grow enough disdain for those we have deemed less valuable or worse morally than us, We use any and all power we have to oppress, persecute, and even kill. This has shown itself true in all worldviews, secular and religious, throughout all of human history. But listen, I know what you're thinking. Not me. See, maybe you can see how thinking you're a better person can lead to injustice. And maybe, and maybe you'd even say that, yeah, I, I can admit that I think I'm better than some people. I'm more valuable but you are incapable of injustice. And I understand that position. But then comes the Stanford Prison Experiment. Popularized by a 2015 movie, this experiment was conducted at the University of Stanford in 1971. The hope of the study was to see what happened when people people were thrust into positions of power and powerless. It was supposed to be a two-week study that was shut down after only six days due to escalating conflict, demeaning behavior, and ruthless treatment. See, nobody had predicted this. I'm guessing if you asked those who were hired as guards only six days earlier, they would have said they were incapable of this kind of injustice. See, the reality is that prideful people, given unchecked power, leads to incredible amounts of injustice. But I want to argue today that the skeptic who would make the claim Christians should abandon their beliefs because those who have claimed Christianity have acted with such injustice, acted with such pride, they don't actually want that. Because as we said before, what will happen is they'll just pick up some other set of beliefs that makes them superior, that gives them what their heart longs to hear. You are one of the good people. See, what we really need is a worldview that kills our pride. What we really need is not to abandon the teachings of Christianity, but to go deeper into them. What we really need is the gospel. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the number one pride killer. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, when believed, is the only way to put to death our pride and empty us, empty us of our need to be exalted above others. Now, I can hear you saying, didn't you just say that making some value set as the only way of separating the good people from the bad people, leads to injustice. And now you're going to say that the Christian message is the only way to become truly humble. Yeah, I am. But before you check out on me, I want you to entertain with me the idea that maybe Christianity doesn't teach what you think it teaches. So if you would, open your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in Luke 18... We're going to take a look this morning at a parable of Jesus, starting in verse 9. Verse 9 says, He also told, him, told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went in, into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, and one a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. All right, so let's stop there. See, Luke does something here that most of the gospel writers don't do when looking at parables of Jesus. He gives us a little glimpse into the purpose of this parable. We see here in verse 9, as, as Luke is explaining um, who Jesus is speaking to, some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others, therefore, with contempt. See, Jesus is sharing this parable directly to those who we've been talking about, the prideful, those people who have a tendency to look at how much better they are than others and therefore look down at others. So he goes on, and he says that the two men go up to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. See, these two men held drastically different positions in society in Jesus' day. The Pharisee was by all accounts a moral man. They didn't cheat. They didn't swear. They, didn't, they were finely dressed, and they were the good men. They were good people, good husbands, good fathers, pillars of moral conduct. All of society knew this. But the tax collector, on the other hand, everybody knew who they were as well. They were the exact opposite. These men were greedy swindlers. They were the bad people. See, a tax collector in Jesus' day had several things going against him. First, he worked for the government. No one likes a government worker. Sorry to anyone. Uh, (laughs) But not only did they work for the government, but an oppressive and ruthless regime, the Romans. And second, they were crooks. They, would, they were sent out to collect a certain amount of tax, and they were known to cheat and swindle others out of additional funds and keep it for themselves. See, they were getting rich off of dishonest gain. These guys were clearly the bad people. So in reality... The prayer of the Pharisee makes a little bit of sense, doesn't it? On the surface, he's right. He doesn't do what bad people do. He doesn't extort. He isn't unjust in his dealings, and he hasn't cheated on his spouse. And best of all, he wasn't a tax collector. His prayer and even his awareness of the goodness of, in, in his comparison to the tax collector makes a little bit of sense, doesn't it? So how, is the tax collector, uh, how, how does the tax collector respond in his prayer? Verse 13, he says, But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, have mercif- mercy on me, or be merciful to me, a sinner. See, the tax collector comes to the temple without any sort of resume. He comes only with confession. A confession that he is a sinner in need of mercy. See, his prayer also makes sense, doesn't it? What leg does he have to stand on? How could he possibly commend himself before God? So how is it that Jesus responds to these two prayers in a way that doesn't make a lot of sense? Verse 14 says, I tell you, This man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, this should shock us a little bit. See, Jesus looks at these two men and says it's the one who everybody would look at as the bad guy who goes away justified and is deemed righteous, called good, rather than the Pharisee. See, this is what makes the gospel the only way to really humble a heart. Every belief system, religious and non-religious, has built within it this, this idea that this is what righteous people do. And these are the things that, that sinners do. And it can only, and it's only the good, uh, good people who hold up to this particular moral set that are good. See, but it can also be that, the, that it's those who impose their moral code on others that are the bad people. And only those who say every, every worldview is correct are the good people. Whatever belief system, certain actions, certain beliefs, certain thoughts separate the good people from the bad people. And in reality, Christianity is no different. See, the Bible does teach that there are some actions that those who are righteous do and certain actions that those who are sinners do. The Bible does teach that there is an objective moral reality that all people are accountable to. But where Christianity differs is its standard of goodness. To be one of the good people, it isn't necessary to be better than most. Your good deeds to outweigh your bad deeds. See, the Bible says that God is so holy, that that he's so righteous. Um, For one to be considered righteous, to be considered good, he must be perfect. But see, the problem is that everybody falls short. Everybody. You, me, everyone. Or, as it says in Romans, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. See, the biblical, biblical account is more than just a rule book. It isn't just a list of do's and don'ts. It's ultimately a story. The story. The story about God and his desire to dwell with people. And as most stories go, everything starts off good. But it doesn't last long. Only three chapters into Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and the world comes crashing down. Humanity goes the way of pride. Humanity seeks to become equal with God, to be exalted. And see, God in his loving provision has filled the world with good things and placed man in the garden with one rule. One. Don't eat of this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And man enticed by Satan, himself an angel that fell because of pride, but we don't have time for that. See, Satan tricks man says, this God, he only doesn't want you to eat from this tree because in the day you eat of it, you'll be like him. So desiring that, they eat. And everything breaks. See, this world we live in, the world of injustice, the world of poverty, greed, envy, strife, this is not how we were created to live. This is not what God has wanted. God has desired to live with his people. The same people that he made in his image and had called only a couple pages back very good were no longer very good. They broke, and they broke bad. See, these people, Adam and Eve, were now sent out of the garden, but before they were, God laid down a couple of judgments of how things now, how the the world had broken. But he also gave a promise that this wasn't how their story would end. That God would send a redeemer, somebody who would come and make right what went wrong. He would give a death blow to evil and and this redeemer would suffer to do it. And for much of the Old Testament, you get a picture of God's people as an adulterous and unfaithful people. But you also see God's continued faithfulness and steadfastness to the people who have rejected him. See, he saves them from Egypt through incredible acts of power and might. And boom, they're back to worshiping idols that their own hands have created. See, this is the consistent theme of the Old Testament. At times, people would turn away from God and turn to other idols. And other times, they would turn toward God, but only seek to earn their way back through strict moral law-keeping. See, God continues to say this. If you humble yourself, I will heal you. Admit your unfaithfulness. See your sin against me and turn back to me. I will forgive you. See, the laws that God made, the laws that that he had laid out, had multiple purposes. First, they were the objective moral standard, the idea that to be a good person, to make your way back to me, it will take this, perfection. Scripture says that you must be perfect, but Scripture also says that you can't. And you won't. See, this creates a big problem. If we were made to dwell with God, and he desires to dwell with his people, but we cannot cleanse ourselves through obedience, where's the hope? But see, there was another point to the law. The law was also given to, see, to show us how far we fall short. God expects perfection, yes, but not for him, because we can neither add to God nor take anything away from him. He is unchanging, holy, perfect God, who scripture says dwells in unapproachable light. It says that no imperfect man can see him and live. For those of you keeping score, that kind of makes it hard to dwell. See, God expects perfection, but he expects it for us, to make us able to dwell with him. But he also doesn't expect that we'll be able to do it. So he gave the sacrificial system, which was a pointer, a shadow of the ultimate sacrifice that would come. See, the point of the sacrificial system was to show God's people that it was him who would make us clean. That effort isn't what cleanses you, but is mercy given to a humble heart of faith. But see, this just became another law for Israel. In Isaiah, God, through the prophet Isaiah, actually rebukes Israel for the way that they sacrifice, saying he's had enough of vain offerings and their vain sacrifices. He says that these people worship me with their mouth, but not with their, with their lives. They are, con- they are looking to do the external laws and rituals that I prescribe without actually looking through them to the heart of them. He says, with their lips they worship me, but their hearts are far from me. See, God hates piety. He hates putting on the outward clothing of, and acts of worship, while not, bringing, while not actually bringing your heart. He hates the skeleton of worship without the heart of worship. See, this is the problem in that parable we read earlier. Although the Pharisee moved right up to the temple he brought his resume to the temple and left his heart outside the gate. But the tax collector, though he stood far off, he brought his heart close. He is the one who actually met with God. And because of it, he went away justified, forgiven, and cleansed. And See, as Christians, we often still deal with God heartlessly. We say things like, we can just get prayer back in school, if we can get all shops closed on Sunday, if we can get people to live as good people, then God wins again. But see, God doesn't win again then. See, we can legislate people into doing the actions of our faith. However, we cannot legislate a heart change. We, can actually, we cannot actually legislate people into faith. We cannot actually, actually legislate a heart that is humbled. And there is no law that makes a heart actually humble. See, we can change our appearance, but no human can change his own heart. It is God himself that would humble his people. It is God who would once and for all show his people that the way that they, they would become fit to dwell with him would also be done by him. Turn with me this morning, if you would, to the passage we read out of Philippians. It's Philippians 2. We're going to start in verse 3. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. See, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, the gospel message is the only thing that humbles a heart, because it is the only religion, the only set of beliefs that says you are one of the bad people. And even more than that, it says all your efforts in the world will still leave you falling short. See, the biblical gospel is plain and simply offensive. It cuts your pride out at the knees. The biblical gospel is that salvation comes by grace. So there is no boasting. What do you have to boast about? What makes you better? See, this is a gift Salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in the atoning work of Christ alone. That's it. See, all of us are bad people. All people are dirty and will only be clean, not by washing yourself with all kinds of good works, but only by faith in the one who worked perfectly. We all want to be exalted, but Christians believe that their exaltation comes only through the humbling work of their God. Jesus humbled himself to humble his people. He lived as the only perfect one that we might be counted righteous. He laid his life down so that we might be given life. And he was raised from the dead as a promise to us that one day we too would be raised to new life. See, for the Christian, the beating of the chest confession, God have mercy on me, a sinner, is not something that we do once, but it is a daily act of repentance. See, what has the power to free someone who finds their value in things to become generous with all that they have? What has the power to make someone who clings to their social image free to serve and love those that society would look down on? And what has the power to make the person who in pride and hypocrisy can't help their constant need to compare to others. It's only the gospel. It's only by the power of the one who gave up his power to set us free. So listen, every week we finish up with the Lord's table, right? And if you're a skeptic in here, if you haven't embraced Christ, we ask that as we do it, you wouldn't come down and take the elements, but rather this morning that you would take Christ, that you would recognize your sin, recognize your fallenness, and you would call out on him. And for those of us who do come down and take, out, take the elements, let us be reminded this morning this, this meal isn't for good people. This meal is for a bad people with trying to cling to a good Savior who has promised to make us new. Let me pray. <clears throat> Father Pride is not just a problem of those outside of the church. Pride can can get into our hearts and and draw us away from you and and make our relationship merely an external exoskeleton relationship. Father for those of us who who have been in this mode of relationship, would you forgive us? Would you draw us to see that confession is one of the greatest gifts you've given us, the ability to approach a holy God covered by the blood of your Son and to be changed there at the cross? Father, I pray that as we, as we leave, that we would be reminded daily of our own sinfulness of the value you put into every human when you created them in your image. And that we would be free to love and serve those who we used to look at as worse. And we ask that you would do this in, in the name of the powerful and risen Christ. Amen.